got a lot of things on my heart swirling around, and I'd like to just have a little bit of a conversation with you. Some of this will be familiar to some of you because we've already talked about it on some level in various settings. But I'd like to... I'd like to open a conversation consistent with some of the things that Brother Daniel is sharing and Brother Simeon. I wish I could repeat exactly what you said, but you were repeating what I said, so <laughs> and I can't repeat myself. So anyway, I said the same thing to someone this week. How, what, was that, what was that last thing you were just saying? When we compare it to what we deserve or what we expected, how, how did you put that? When we, when we put on the scale what we think we ought to get from God. What we think we ought to get from God. That's, that's how the devil likes to trip us up, amen? Well, I might segue into it, but I was telling the, we, were, we had a dinner last night for Zane's birthday, and we were enjoying some really good Indian food. And um, we were talking about different cuisines around the world and some of the strange foods that have uh, been considered as delicacies by various cultures at different times. And we're not going to get into those here tonight because it's not appetizing in any sense of the word. But I was also thinking and I talked, I, I shared with those at the dinner table, how I often discover that some of the most special, uh, outstanding dishes, recipes, are from the most simple ingredients, oftentimes ingredients that were so cheap as to initially be discarded and that they were picked up by the poor and something amazing made of them. An example might be barbecue brisket in Texas. Texas barbecue brisket has almost mythic proportions. Am I right or am I right? And yet barbecue brisket the cut of brisket itself, it, it's the one piece of meat that nobody knows what to do with. Nobody knew what to do with. It was the cheapest. It was the toughest. Too big to put in a crock pot. Too tough to cook like steaks. Riddled with gristle and collagen, etc., etc. And yet it becomes this specialty, this novelty because someone accepted it for what it was and didn't complain that it wasn't something better, but said, what's the most that I can make out of this? It's like whoever came up with the revelation that you had to cook the barbecue to an internal temperature of 195 and that it, these salts and, and spices put this kind of bark on it and this kind of smoke, put this kind of flavor in it. If that person who developed that recipe or those people who were part of that process, if, if only they had just been all stumped comparing their brisket to the tenderloin, 
How many of you have had a filet mignon or a slice of tenderloin in your life? If you've eaten around here, you probably have. Well, I can tell you a tenderloin is pretty good. If you're buying it at a nice restaurant, you're paying about $84 a pound. Brisket, not so much. Brisket used to be the cheapest hunk of meat on the cow. Okay? And if the person who came up with that recipe had only just been grinding away, fretting and huffing and puffing about the tenderloin he didn't get, or the standing rib roast, the prime rib he didn't get, right? I mean, even the New York Strip, if only God was that good to me, he would have never come up with a recipe that took brisket in popularity past all of those that I just mentioned. Can we agree? And it's like that across the board. God gives you a certain amount of budgeted grace. Grace on a budget. And you get to decide where you're going to spend those grace dollars. Where you're going to use that energy, that mental power, that emotional drama. You get to decide. He puts that in your hands. That's why Paul called it, in what is for some, a mysterious phrase, the stewardship of God's grace. In Christian circles, the word stewardship is most often referring to what? Finances. Everybody knows that we've got to be good stewards of our finances. But Paul uses the same word when he talks about grace. We've got to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. As he says in 1 Peter 4.10, We've got to share it with one another. So God budgets a certain amount of grace. And if he gives you $70 of grace value to make the most of every opportunity, but instead you spend 65 grinding about how your opportunities aren't what they used to be or aren't what so-and-sos are, then you can stand and face your problems with only $5 worth of grace and blame God because you weren't a steward of His grace. You're a squanderer of His grace. There's two kinds of people. There are the kind of people who are going to spend their energy, their limited amount of energy, complaining bucking, fighting, resenting, regretting what is. And there is the other kind of person that's going to use that same energy to make it the most that it can be. And so many times our happiness eludes us because we get locked in that first camp, a camp without gratitude. And gratis, the root of the word gratitude is grace. How many of you ever heard of Mexican barbacoa? You know what it is? It's tongue and cheek meat. 
I see noses curling up. You liked it, though. Tongue and cheek meat. Next time you eat that taco, just picture biting into some tongue and tell yourself it's delicious. No, all joking aside, what are we talking about here? Why do you think there's a famous recipe from Mexico called barbacoa? Because some housewife sat around and complained that she didn't get checacoa, right? Is that how they came up with that? How is it that we've all heard of this delicacy, which happens to be quite yummy, that is barbacoa? Because someone didn't have the money. Someone didn't have the means to acquire what they wanted. But they had the attitude to make what they were given the most it could be. And it doesn't matter if you own the whole cow or the butchery or the ranch where the cows are raised. It doesn't matter what you've got. You've never got what you want. We don't know what we need, and our wants lead us on rabbit trails. The richest people are not the happiest people. That alone should demonstrate how deceptive human wants can be. If you live your whole life bucking against and resenting and regretting and wishing and pining away that it's not what you thought it should be, You're never going to see God's grace infiltrate that problem and turn it into something miraculous. God wants to take your toughest piece of meat, your most grisly problem, and turn it into a famous miracle. When I was in South Africa, staying at the old orchard, they served me a dish I thought I would never eat because the name of it kind of turned me off. It was called oxtail stew. I know you can't imagine what it was made out of. And it was deceptive because it wasn't an ox. It was just an ordinary cheap cow. But they called it oxtail stew, and it comes from Scotland. What do you think that came from? One day the lord of the castle says, no, I've had my fill of prime rib. I can't even look at that tenderloin. I need some oxtail. Is that where it came from? Where do you think it came from? I'll tell you, it came from poor people who hung around the fringes like Ruth hung around the fringes of the field in Boaz's day. (laughs) Poor people who said, kids, let's be thankful that we've got this. But mom, there's no meat in it. Just wait. I think if we cook it right, we're going to get something out of it. I think it's kind of ironic and, and pretty neat that around the world, some of the most famous recipes come from the cheapest reject materials that have been handled with love. 
that have been touched and changed and transformed by grace. <laughs> Those who have been working with me for years in the outreach team know that a long time ago I told them, if you're tempted to say, well, Lord, we get the short end of the stick, just know that you're right. Our task is to figure out how to make, grab the short end of the stick on each end and pull with all our might until it becomes the long end of the stick. How many of you think back on the founding of this church, that cold water flat, which means they didn't have a hot water heater, which they didn't. They had a, they had an, a plug-in shower head that sometimes worked, sometimes worked. But how many of you think of the founding of this church on East 14th Street and you say, oh boy, there's something warm in your heart that thinks back to that time with fondness and respect, eh? How many? Amen. I remember my dad telling me that some of his friends came to stay with them and they didn't have room in their small apartment to house these two guys and so they put him up put them up in the chapel below them so they were in an apartment building and they lived in the same building that the chapel was housed in right and while they were laying there having entertained their friends and having appreciated the company no doubt before the days of cell phones and emails and quick connections and right they were no doubt appreciating company from back in Texas all the way out here in New York my mom was very young my, my dad was still in his 20s um, and my dad tells my mom as he is not uh, as he is known to do he turns to my mom in the middle of the night and he says honey those two friends of ours, he called them by name, are down there talking to each other about how this condition and this horrible building and this place that we're in is God's judgment on us. And he didn't know it until years later when one of those friends confessed to him, came to him about a decade later, that that's exactly what they were doing. What does it say in Isaiah about Jesus? We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, one from whom men hide their faces. And yet, there you have the oxtail, the tongue, and the cheek meat <laughs> turning into something pretty special, don't you? There you've got people not complaining about how it could be better and should be better and they deserve better, but people saying, God, this is what it is. And thank you for the opportunity. We're going to make it the most it can be. Oh, it's such a disgusting entitlement mentality that paralyzes progress. That 
dilutes and neutralizes the miraculous power of grace to live your life chafing against the givens of God. To fail to believe that the Apostle Paul's word at the Areopagus was true. God has appointed the times of our habitation and the exact places of our dwelling that we might seek Him. God put us in a place where we couldn't do it by ourselves, where the need would be sufficient to make us search for Him. If perchance it's not a certainty because it depends on the totality of your search, if perchance we might find Him, though He be not far from any one of us, for in Him we live, we move, we have our being. The carnal man wants a life from God, but doesn't want a life in God. Did you hear me? The carnal man wants a life from God that allows him to be independent of God. But God gives a life that is purposefully insufficient apart from a relationship with Him. God chooses your dwelling, your place, in the hopes that it will provoke you to ask for something, to need something, to search for something, and to find something. If you think God owes you a good life and you get a life that should provoke searching, you're going to feel jilted. You're going to feel shortchanged. You're going to say, God, why have you done this? But if you know that his intent is to get you to look for him, then when you run into a problem, you're going to find him. Have you ever seen a parent talk with a child who is sure of themselves and the child wanted the parent to allow them to do something and the parent says, oh, you think you can do that by yourself, do you? And the child's like, yeah, I think so. And the parent's like, okay, go ahead. And the child goes walking over there and grabs hold of the laundry basket or whatever it is and goes, I can't, mommy, can you help me? What has the mother done in this incidence? She has appointed the bounds of his habitation that he might turn to her. She has purposefully allowed him to step toward things that he cannot do without her help. And that's what God does for us. The book of Romans has this passage that is so familiar we might become deaf to it, but I'm going to read it tonight. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now that is a scripture that requires total acceptance or total rejection. This is either a categorical truth or it's a big bunch of baloney. There's no 
parsing this to be half this and half that. We know that God causes most things. Is that what it says? We know that God causes good things to work together. Hmm? We know that God causes things from Him to work together for the good. No, he, he could not be clearer. He says, we know that God causes all things, all things to work together for the good. For those whom he decides are worthy of it. No, he, he puts the operative determinative factor on us. For those who God loves, is that what it says? No, he says, for those who love God. It's up to you whether this is going to work together for the good. Hmm. Amen? For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. When your life is centered on your purpose, things don't work together for the good. They don't work together at all, in fact. Only when you are ordered guided, driven by a transcendent purpose, the eternal purpose of God, which he predestined in Christ Jesus, only then, when you're called by that purpose and you're filled with a love for God, how did your song say what was a chorus? There's nothing better than you. Only that person realizes that everything works together for the good. It all proves God, for better or for worse. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Does that mean bad things don't happen? Hmm? No, it doesn't mean that. It means bad things do happen. But whether they are useful to you or a waste is entirely up to you. In the book of Genesis, the last chapter, the last verses, Joseph's brothers disclose themselves to him. These brothers have contemplated his murder, have sold him into slavery, have lied about his absence, and never owned up to their mistake. Pretty good guys, right? And on Joseph's end, it was just smooth sailing. God just swooped in, and nothing ever went tough for him again. What a blessed life. Hmm? If anybody ever got the oxtail, it was Joseph. <laughs> what did he say to his brothers? says, his brothers came and fell down on their faces before him and said, Oh, do not hold this thing against us. We are your slaves. And he says to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Is he doubting that they need correction? No. But he's saying, 
I'm not God here. I'm not one to take vengeance. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? That gives me an insight into this guy's mind. I'd like to think he must have been asking himself that question for the previous 17 years or so. (laughs) What's going on? Why am I chained behind this camel train? Don't be afraid. Am I God? (laughs) What's going on? Why am I being sold as a slave to this guy, this Egyptian named Potiphar? Don't be afraid. Am I God? What's going on? Why are they lying about me? Throwing me in prison without a trial. Don't be afraid. Am I God? When he was brought out of the prison, they shaved him up and gave him a haircut so that he could be presentable. He must have been quite a sight. Decade, more than a decade in that prison. And and the the Pharaoh, who is the most powerful man in the world, called a God-man, He says to him, I've heard that you have these powers. And what does Joseph reply? It's not me. It's not in me. Don't be afraid. Am I God? That's what he says to his brothers. Am I in the place of God? And then he he makes that next statement that we've all heard. What does he say next? You intended it to harm me. For evil, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You know what that is? That's God's eternal purpose that we just heard. Listen, did you hear in his statement that there are two intentions? There are two countervailing intentions, one on the side of evil, and that side of evil is the one instigating, prompting the action, perpetrating the crime. And then there's this other intention, God in heaven looking down on the messes we make and saying, I can still iron it out for good. I can still turn it for my glory. God intended it for good. Joseph had outlived his impatience. Joseph had pressed past his impertinence and he had started to see how if horrible things had not happened to him, he would not be alive. In an ironic twist of fate, or rather of grace and God's divine providence, if Joseph hadn't been put in a pit, if Joseph hadn't been sold as a slave, if he hadn't been forgotten in a prison, then the famine would have been successful. And not only Joseph, but all of his family would have died. And what he had wanted was to be that sheave that shock of wheat, that sheave of wheat that the others would come to when they were in need, right? 
And God saw that desire in him. He, desi- he saw that desire for purpose, that desire to be useful. And he took him in this most circuitous route that so few could survive. Can you think of any other scriptures that show us a double intent from the devil and from God? Anybody? Sir? Brother Ephraim reminds us of Job. The sons of God gather around his throne and the Lord says to Satan, where have you been? And he says, roaming throughout the earth. It's like I'm taking a tally of the fact that you've got nothing going on here, God. Just want to rub that in your face. And God says, oh, well, if you were roaming through the whole earth, did you see the one hope? Did you stumble over the one guy who trusts me more than his flesh? Have you considered my servant Job? Because it portends bad things for your kingdom, Satan. Hmm? I'm filling in the blanks, but you get it, right? He says, oh, well, you know, I can explain that. Skin for skin. You've put a hedge around him. That's why. Satan is banking on Job. Would you agree? Satan is wagering his reputation, his glory on Job's demise. And God is risking his reputation, his glory on Job's faithfulness. Two champions meet on the battlefield of Job's crisis. The devil and Job. (laughs) One guy, God is in the arena clapping for him, though he never hears it. Amen. And the other, the host of hell are supporting him in all of his efforts to destroy that tenuous faith that Job had in God. And we can see how the devil intended it for evil and how God intended it for good. Can you think of any others? You know, Peter said to the people that crucified Jesus, that which was foreordained before time, you accomplished through lawless hands. Amen. Keep the Son of God and hang him on a tree. Did you hear that? That which was foreordained before time, you accomplished through lawless hands. Does God work through lawless hands sometimes? He does. What about Paul? We're all familiar with that, right? And Satan, I had given me a messenger from Satan in my side, a thorn. And that word thorn is like a tent peg. It's not a prick. It's a big deal. I mean, he calls it a messenger of Satan. What does a messenger do? He carries a message. <laughs> Hello, Paul. I got something from you for you. This one's addressed to you, Paul. Oh, wow. Is it FedEx or UPS? Oh, it's Devil Express. Have you ever gotten a package from Devil Express? <laughs> I have. And sometimes you just can't let go of it. Sometimes it sticks in your side. It's not something you can drop like a hot potato. It's a tent peg protruding out of your 
side. So there was a messenger. And Paul said, well, I need to sit down with the devil and talk with him about it. See what I should learn from this, right? Let's, we've learned from Eve in the garden that if you just talk with the snake, things get better quick, right? Rather, Paul did something else, didn't he? He said, God, I got something that the devil has intended for harm. Could you talk to me about your intention, please? And the Lord said, Paul, it's not what you asked for, but my grace is sufficient. And I am going to perfect power in this weakness. How many of you remember how in Exodus 9 and in Romans 9, the Lord makes a statement about Pharaoh. I've ministered from this phrase before. He says, Behold, I have raised up Pharaoh that I might demonstrate my power in him. Thank you, Jesus. God, why aren't you stopping this? God, why aren't you changing this? God, why aren't you avenging poor Joseph? He's already been through the pit. He's already been on the slave trade. He's already been cheated and lied about and imprisoned falsely. God, where are you? I have raised up this problem, this impossibility, that I might demonstrate my power in it. Don't give out on me, Paul. Don't buckle under pressure. You've got it. Your grace is sufficient. No, I didn't say it's excessive. I didn't say it's abundant. But it is sufficient. Hang in there now. Come on. There's power coming. We're going to take these scraps and make them something fit for a king. Just stick with me, Paul. Amen. You see, <clears throat> you don't live in a perfect church. I know that's not news to you, but I'm serving notice anyway. There is no such thing as a perfect family. You don't have a perfect parent or pastor or child or friend. Does everybody want to go home? Or can we go on from that? Because that's ultimately what the question is. How are you going to respond to the vicissitudes of life, the imperfections of people and events when they slap you in the face and knock you flat? Are you going to whine about what it should have been, could have been, wish it was? Are you going to say, God, I'm going to use the budgeted amount of grace that you've given me to make the most of every opportunity and to give the devil no room to get his way. Not on my watch. You know, when Joseph had his dream, he was a little bit proud. Remember, his parents said, oh, will your mother and I also bow down and worship you? It was a little stinging there. It was a little bit of hubris. Right? God had an intention through Joseph's trials. If God needed to use and those trials for something good, if God needed to do, use those trials to work something good, we got a problem. 
in that if the trials hadn't happened, the good wouldn't have been worked. The man wouldn't have been ready. The miracle wouldn't have happened. So there's one way you say, okay, bad things happen. God doesn't want it, but okay, he'll make something out of it at least. You know, shepherd's pie, you know, chicken pot pie, stroganoff, things like that. That's kind of like, well, it didn't go how it should, but God can whip something up of the scraps and we can suffer through it. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying this had to happen. Amen. As surely as Jesus had to die, this had to happen. And so you should look at your problems. You should look at the things that aggravate you most, that frustrate you most, and say, oh, I wish this hadn't happened. And yet, if it hadn't, something else would have had to have happened. What might that have been? Oh, thank you, Lord, for what's happened. It's got to happen. Something's got to be changed in Joseph. Something's got to be worked in this man. It's not just the arranging of situations, of objects or events. Something has got to be forged out of this man. That's why the Bible says that the testing of our faith is like gold in a refiner's fire. It doesn't just show what is. It refines what is and makes it what it should be. Job didn't just reveal that he was as good as God thought he was. Job became somebody different. He finished that journey with a completely different understanding of himself and God and creation than he began it. It wasn't just let me show you he can suffer through it. See there? For no reason he did it. But he saw his Redeemer. I know my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth and I will see him. That was his desire and that came true. There was something that had to be worked there that couldn't couldn't be avoided. And see, the, 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 the danger is to try to understand those hardships simply from the worldview of an individual. But no man is an island entire of himself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If England be washed away, then Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thine own friends. Never seek to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you. So if we're just these little individuals scattered across the globe in our little thimbles, splashing out our problems individually, we can't understand it. Could Job possibly comprehend the meaning of his affliction just in his lifetime? No. No. Could Joseph possibly comprehend why this needed to happen just from the vantage point of himself? No, but he didn't see the famine that was coming yet. He didn't see the multitudes gathering for grain. He didn't see all of that. And if you stop the process short, 
and you center the questions in yourself, there's no way you're going to make sense of it. Your story is not a big enough story. But God's story is. You are merely a line on a page, a page in a book, a book in a library of meaning and purpose that God is demonstrating to the world. So look at Jesus in his drama. Is Jesus trying to understand and focus his affliction solely on himself? Is he trying to view it and understand it through the lens of his personal problem of how this affects me? What are some of the things Jesus says and does while he's going through it? Remember when people showed him pity, he was carrying the cross and uh, women came alongside and were just weeping and mourning. And what did he say to them? He was insisting, don't get this about me. Don't act like this is about me. This isn't just about me. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For if they do this when the tree is green, what will they do when it is dry? He was constantly projecting his pain onto the bigger picture of God's purpose for those God loved when he sent his son into the world to save them. And on the cross, what is he saying? How could you do this to me? What did I ever do to you? Come on now, is that how he's trying to process this pain? Is that how he's trying to make sense of it? How is he handling his personal affliction? There's no meaning in the thimble of your individuality. There's only meaning in the magnitude of God's purpose. If you want everything to work together for the good, you've got to be called according to a transcendent purpose. A life lived unto itself is by nature a meaningless life because it dies. It ends. Only what is poured into others lives on and on and on until the Lord comes and the Son of Man finds faith on the earth. What was he saying from the cross? Mother, behold your son. He was looking out for mom. Son, behold your mother. Talking to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. Praying for them, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You think he was just waxing eloquent? You think he was just being sappy and dramatic when he said that? I believe he was bringing every thought into captivity to the Holy Spirit that was in him. And he was saying, this is not about me. When Pilate tried to make it all about him, are you a king then? He says, for this cause I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. The truth that God loves his people and that salvation is at hand. Thank you, Jesus, for those who believe on him. You cannot find meaning when it's about you. You say to me, well, Brother Ossie, I get it. You're talking about... You talk, you're talking to me about, um, you know, when I suffer a tragedy. No, I'm really not, because Joseph didn't suffer a tragedy. Joseph suffered unkindness at the hands of people he could have and should have trusted. 
You want to say, everything in my life except what people do to me is going to work together for the good. And I want you to know that God does not want you to have a perfect life because you wouldn't seek Him if you did. God has appointed the bounds of your habitation and the exact places of your dwelling so that you would be dependent on Him, so that you would have a need in your heart to get a hold of something that was transcendent to yourself. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And from the side of the personal tragedy, from the human side of Joseph's brothers, they were evil. But from the divine side, it was God's purpose. From the human side of the crucifixion, those who crucified the Lord of glory were evil. Can we agree with that? But from the divine purpose, salvation was coming to the rest of mankind. Do you see it? If you look at it from the human side, it's terrible. But if you believe for the divine purpose, it's durable. You can endure it. It's purposeful. God has an intention behind it. I want you to ask yourself, what kind of person am I? And can I change what kind of person I am? Am I the kind of person who's smart enough to know what the best cuts in life are, but blind enough to complain when I never get them? Or am I the kind of person who believes that everything that comes my way, most especially the hard things, the bad things, the tough things, they are opportunities for grace. And I am going to make the most of these opportunities, and I want to give God the glory. Am I the kind of person who spends the capital of God's help on changing what is God's to change and neglecting what is mine to change? Or am I the kind of person who gives the last measure of my strength toward doing my part for His glory? You know, there are times where people are going to misunderstand you. Can God work that together for the good in your life? I am asking you right now, can He? If you cannot look back on the hard things and say, God has worked it for the good. Okay, you may regret it. I'm not saying you'll ever pull away some regret. I'm not, I'm not saying you'll ever be without regret. I'm not saying that you won't wish someone hadn't hurt you. I'm not saying it will be without pain. But if you love God and are called according to His purpose, do you believe that God intends that for good? I'm asking you, do you? Do you believe that? Is that a point of faith in your heart? That God intends those things for good? Because if you are, you might be faithful with the stewardship of grace. If you believe that. And if you're not, then you're already casting yourself in a role that ends in defeat. And there's no hope. It's just a matter of time. You're going to go up a roller coaster, ups and downs, and ups and downs, and ups and downs, and ups and downs. 
Do you believe that God has appointed the bounds of your habitation and the exact situations of your life to get you to seek Him? You know, ultimately, grace is not just an attitude, although it is. And it's not just an aptitude, although it's that also. Grace is an anointing. It's, a, it's the Spirit of grace. It's the move of God's Spirit. Hallelujah. And so many of us, we don't want to make that full sacrifice. We want to get to a certain point, but we don't want to give that last 5% because we're afraid if we do it, if we give that full sacrifice, if we hold nothing in reserve, what are we going to be left with? But until you make that decision, you're just kidding yourself. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It's appeared to you. It's appeared to me. It wants to have its way. But you are the steward of it. Just like he said, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. The spirit is the subject, like the student, like the, the citizen of the prophet. He gets to decide. You get to decide what you do with God's grace. Amen, amen. And I, I, I do, I see people who come to this, come to a certain point. It's like they're hurting, they're Paul. They're hurting, it's tiresome, they're weary, Amen. And they get to this certain point, this tipping point. It's like it almost, it almost morphs into power. It almost becomes that increased dunamis of grace. But, but they hold something back. They hold something in reserve. Thank you, Jesus. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a gift that I'm talking about. Amen. Maybe it's a gift of sharing or singing or serving worshiping, whatever it is, they're going to give 95%. But there's this fear that if I give 100%, I'm hooked, I'm, I'm, I'm held to it. I can't go back from that. And, and, and so you, you're playing a, a bargain with God. Amen. But you already know what he, Paul said in Romans 12 about that. You've got to give everything. You have got to lose yourself. Peter said... No scripture is of private interpretation. No scripture is of private interpretation, and no prophecy came by the will of man. But the holy men of old were carried along by the Holy Spirit when they gave us this. I'm paraphrasing. Amen? What is he saying? This word carried, you've heard, is the same word as rushing mighty wind on the day of Pentecost. This word carried is usually a word that describes the transport of an inert object. Very rarely does it refer to carrying people. One exception is there were four men who had a friend who was a paralytic and they carried him to Jesus. You've got to get to the place where your flesh is no more in control 
than that paralytic was in control of his mat as he bustled through the crowd, jumped up on the roof, scooted over for the tiles to be removed, and whoo, here we go. You don't want to be carried. You don't want to lose control. So you give 95%, and then you ask God why the purpose wasn't realized in your life. The purpose is there, and the power will be perfected in your weakness. But you've got to be someone like Peter, who was told by the Lord when you were young, you went where you wanted. But when you are old, someone else will gird you and take you where you don't want to go. Hallelujah. When it says Jesus, it says that Jesus was stumbling under his cross and they grabbed a man, Simon, from Cyrene, and they forced him to carry that cross. It's the same word. It's the word where the man tells Jesus, my son is demon-possessed. He throws himself into the fire and into the water, and your disciples can't cast it out. He said, bring him. Carry him to me. Amen. In all of these situations, the person or the thing being carried doesn't set the pace, doesn't set the who, the when, the how. It doesn't set anything. It just goes along. And Peter was saying, you can't interpret God's will, God's word, even a scripture with your private interpretation. That's where you're in control. But you've got to be, you've got to find and yield to the word of God like the people who wrote the Word of God, carried by the Holy Spirit, not contrived by the will of man. And that's the place we got to get to. we got to get to that place where we feel that we are stepping out into currents beyond our control, where we feel our feet go out from underneath us, and we're okay with it. And we don't gripe about it, and we don't ask God for something different. We say, your kingdom come, your will be done. If I'm going to get a message from the devil, then I want to find power perfected in this weakness, God. Amen. Don't let it be a waste in me, Jesus. Hallelujah. Don't resent your need for God, else you'll complain about the life situation he chose for you to make you seek him. Don't resent God's prompting to pull you into waters beyond your comprehension and beyond your speed and beyond your control. I'm telling you, you're not what you want to be and you're not going to feel what you want to feel until you lose control. I didn't say until control is lost, but until you lose it. God will be in control, all right? You use the term lose control. People are thinking control is lost. No, Jesus will take the wheel, but you can't. Some have a gift in the Spirit that they want to come to fruition, and it, it troubles them. It knocks on their door, their back door at night, and talks to them. Passes them in a meeting and waves and says, what are you going to do with me? This gift just kind of is always there. Are you going to do anything? And they dabble in it. You know, they, they, 
they, they exercise it where they're in control. But they're afraid of, of giving over completely and what that's going to mean. Amen. What is it going to mean, God, if I pray past this point? What does it mean? What is it going to mean, God, if I pray past this fear? What is it going to mean for me, God, if I yield to this feeling that I have and I spill out my heart without any filter? What is it going to mean? It's going to mean you love God and you're called according to His purpose. And the events of your life will finally start aligning to prove Him, to glorify Him, to work for your good and His good and everyone's good. It's going to mean Jesus is Lord. That's what it's going to mean. Oh, God, I don't want to have 95 percenters. I want to have 100 percenters, Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. God knew that we were, we were 95 percenters in our worship. That's why He gave us that word about Tabernacle of David. Amen. And didn't you feel the Lord invite us to become 100 percenters? Amen. Brothers and sisters, we need to take that same totality into every area of our life. That's where the grace of God is going to come alive. Stop complaining about what it isn't and ask God what you can make it. Ask God what it can be if you believe Him and trust Him. Turn that reject into a delicacy that gives honor and glory to God. The eyes of the Lord that roam to and fro and strengthen the hearts of those fully committed, I want Him to give us that strength individually but severally. As a people, I want that strength for this time. Hallelujah. If any man speaks, let him speak as the oracle of God. If any man serves, let him do so with the dunamis, the strength, but the word is dunamis, that God supplies. You say, well, Lord, no, um, I didn't have any dunamis supplied for this service. That's why I did it the way I did. No, wrong. God uh, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in store. That's what he's promised us. So he has a deposit of grace. Have you spent it on something else? Amen, God. I want to do that, brothers and sisters. I want to cross a threshold. What is the crux of God's purpose? What is the crux? If you had to sum it up with one word, what is the crux of God's purpose? I believe the crux of God's purpose is God's love. Because His love is what transforms people to bring Him glory. And it is called the kingdom of the Son of His love. God's love. And what does that mean? How do you quantify love? Is it a gushy feeling? Is it a sappy word? It may include those things, but that's not love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, so ought we to lay down our lives for one another. And if we're here at communion to remember, then what we're remembering is what love is. We're remembering that we're supposed to lay down our lives for each other. What does that look like? Well, it looks like absorbing death. It looks like coming through and helping somebody avoid death. It looks like doing what needs to be done, standing in someone's place, absorbing what they deserve. This is how love wins every single time.
Amen. So let's come full circle. Do you believe that all things work together for the good? For who? For those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. His purpose to demonstrate His love and save us and change us.